So um, thank you for that, for that lovely introduction. Um, I joined you um, at the winter week before I moved back to the East Coast when I was living in uh, Toronto. Can all of you hear me in the back? Is that a good, is a good sound? Okay, good. Uh, let me know if, if it's a problem. And um, it was really lovely. I met students I hadn't uh, seen for a very long time. I taught for a few years at Maimonides in Boston before I did my doctorate. And here I see some students from Yale and some friends. And I also wanted to acknowledge the presence of my father, Hazen Nyman, who joined us today, who just recently moved back to New York, having been away from New York for a while as well. So thank you. Um, what I'd like to do this morning for the first little bit of time is to give you an overview of what I'm going to do over the next three days. Even if you're not coming to all three days, you'll have an overarching framework for the way I'm thinking about what I would want to call the beginnings of Judaism. Um, and, and I don't mean after 70. I don't mean after the destruction of the temple in 70 and the creation of rabbinic Judaism and what people often call normative Judaism. I'm going to start with the period of the destruction of the first temple and the creation of certain concepts and adjustments, um, what I would call survival techniques, recovering from trauma, and creating a new kind of hope in the history of Judaism, um, which then becomes a kind of example for the world. And I want to um, begin with a little anecdote that I was told when I first started working on this, this particular project that the Dalai Lama went to a group of rabbis and said, I need to know how to survive without my land, without my home. How did you do it? And they responded by saying, we read our texts, we kept our spirit and our life alive through the study of texts. I want to suggest today over the next three days, that this was a response, a Jewish response, not just to the destruction of the Second Temple after 70, but this was a response that the Jewish community formulated after the destruction of the First Temple in 586 BCE. And this is expressed and formulated through many prophetic texts that we have included in Tanakh, but it doesn't end there. That is, the response to 586 BCE continues to be thematized in a series of texts, both biblical from our own Tanakh, as well as other texts we have, not from the rabbinic corpus, but much earlier than any manuscript we have from Chazal, much earlier than any manuscript we have from the rabbinic corpus. We have many, many texts that are called extra-biblical, additional texts from other communities Jews living in Israel, outside of Jerusalem, in the diaspora, right? In Persia, in Alexandria, in Rome, in Galut, in, 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 in a state of exile. Before I begin, um, um, it, it's, um, it's a very hard beginning, and I feel that I can't really begin to talk about um, a series of um, lectures and classes with you called Surviving Destruction um, without reflecting on Newtown and what happened. And I was called, um, and if you'll permit me just for a moment or two to reflect with you about a series of phone calls I got both as a professor at Yale and as a member of the Jewish community in Connecticut. And I was asked to respond 
to what Judaism has to say to the victims of Newtown. And I begin in part, um, Marion Stein, a friend of mine, was in my home yesterday and is with us today and said, well, you know, we talked a little bit about Newtown and I decided to take just two minutes this morning to reflect on the ways in which Judaism can respond and understands how not to respond um, as, as a way of thinking about Newtown. And people said, what text should we read? How, can you tell me what to say to people who've suffered? And my first response actually com comes from, from my father's wisdom. There's a period of aninut. There's a period of before burial, before mourning can really take place. And my response to these people that called me was, give people the space to mourn, the space to be silent. And we're going to see even today that there are texts that say, we cannot sing after the destruction of the temple. Much like Adorno said about the Shoah, we, we, there's nothing to say, there's no poetry, there's no art after the Shoah. We all know that there's enormous creative spirit that the Jewish community has um, created, has imagined after the Shoah. I mean, even, even Jews shortly after were writing, were performing, were imagining life after death. And, and here I don't mean it in terms of resurrection. I mean it a life, a life that's determined, um, a, a tenacious, and determined response to destruction. So what I said to this, um, to this interviewer was, we have responses. Um, and she said, oh, do you mean that they're only responses for the Jewish community, they can't, they can't help anyone else? And I said, no, not at all. I said, they're part of the world. As Jews in the diaspora, we are citizens of the world, we are members of this community, we are also Jews. And we bear the weight of our own tradition and our own experience of trauma and, and, and destruction um, and suffering. Um, but we also know how to be silent. We, um, people have often said to me, you, you Jews, you know how to mourn well. <laughs> and I said, well, we have some experience. Um, we, we know how to mourn. We know how to reflect on trauma and destruction. But we also know how to be silent. And part of what we need to do is to be silent with these people, to sit quietly and let them speak first, as Halakha teaches us with, in, a, in a house of mourning, but also how to help them rebuild, both, both with, as Americans and as Jews. And today's, today's opening is really about building again. Um, and I, I ran through a few different topics with Wendy Amsalom about what we might what we might do, and, and it was really before, before Newtown, but I hope that I kind of want to dedicate the next three mornings to the victims, to the people who suffered this horrific tragedy, and to hope that we don't see tragedy like this again, but also pray that we can find it within ourselves, within our own tradition of struggle, of suffering, and of destruction to bring strength to people when they're ready for, um, for us to, to extend our hands and extend our prayers and extend and share our texts. Okay, so um, th this is th these are the questions that I formulated um, which brought you all here today. How can a community respond to radical change? Throughout history, there have been times where the world has suddenly shifted. Communities have struggled to reinvent themselves and to adapt to new circumstances. And the specific question, this is a question that we've never stopped asking ourselves. We asked this actually before the destruction 
of the first temple. We asked it already in the 8th century when the northern tribes were exiled. And Yeshayahu is totally paralyzed. How are we supposed to respond to the loss of 80, 90% of our people and of our land and of our community? We've had to figure out how to respond to this question for many, many centuries. But what happens to us? How can we survive? This is the Dalai Lama's question. How did you survive destruction and exile? How could we renew ourselves when our leading institutions have been devastated? The monarchy, the prophecy, right? The prophetic institution, as well as the priesthood. What does it mean to continue to insist again and again that we can communicate with God in the absence of our temple, in the absence of our location of revelation? We are dependent on location. We are kind of, you know, connected, connected through our hearts, through our minds, through our bodies to the land of Israel. How can we survive um, without a place? Can we find God again without Jerusalem, without a temple? Those are the questions that we've had to ask and re-ask ourselves many times over the course of centuries. Um, And they're old questions. But the old answers, I want to suggest to us, can continue to help us. They can provide new insight. Um, I have a paragraph um, that I want to read to you from a book, um, a book about the destruction of the Indian community here in America by um, um, a, a Jewish scholar, a philosopher, and a psychiatrist named Jonathan Lear. He's writing about... Jonathan Lear is writing about the destruction of the Crow Indians when they no longer had a home. There was nothing more. Um, In a little footnote, when I first heard him describe this project and he was visiting at the University of Toronto, he taught at Yale for many years and now he's in Chicago, he he had a little aside which is now a footnote to Psalm 137, to Al-Naharot Bavel. This pasuk, Eich nashir et shir Adonai al admat nechar. How can we sing a song? How can we sing a song of Zion? on foreign land. This question, this song, is, is about silencing. I mean, this, I alluded to silence a few moments ago in my introduction. This call for silence um, and the impossibility of song is what he talks about in our own country with respect to the Indians. But he says something that maps on not only to Psalm 137, but to a whole host of texts that we're going to look at today. And here he writes, For in a time of cultural collapse, living memory of that way of life will last only a few years. Like people forget. The most important artifact the white man could offer the Indian, much better than guns, was writing and printing. This is an incredible passage because I chose this passage to start with before the Newtown shooting and it maps on in such profound ways. My my voice is kind of shaking in reading it. The most important artifact the white man could offer the Indian, much better than guns, was writing and printing. In the Phaedrus, Socrates argues that writing can function as a way of forgetting instead of remembering. It can lull one into thinking that one is remembering when one is only moving the phrases about. And again, here, this is a very interesting moment for us because of the constant tension or dynamic between oral Torah and written Torah in our own tradition. That is the understanding that learning has to take place bechavrusa, that learning has to take place through oral transmission and through modeling one's own action after your Rebbe or after your mentor or after, your, after Moshe or Avraham. So one can lull oneself into thinking that one's remembering when one is only moving phrases about. 
Whatever the dangers here, when one's whole way of life is on the verge of collapse, the worry about writing becomes a luxury. The entire culture is in the process of being forgotten. The only hope is to write it down in the hope that future generations may bring it back to life. This bringing back to life, my friends, is the reinterpretation of the past and the present. It's about making the story of the parting of the Red Sea relevant to you today in Manhattan, just outside of Lincoln Center, and trying to understand what it means to think about texts of the past in the present. How do we do that? How do we understand texts of the past that are no longer accessible to us, whether it's the revelations of, of the prophecies of Yirmiyahu, whether it's the Shirot, the songs of David HaMelech, or whether it's the words of wisdom of Shlomo, of Solomon, the king. These are the texts that in order to make them relevant to us, we have to interpret them. The question is whether or not this interpretation is a lesser form of what Yirmiyahu had access to. And what I'd like to suggest today is at least, I can't speak for you, I can speak for the writers of the Second Temple period. They did not talk about themselves as having a lesser form of revelation. They did not, exactly, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost laughable. They did not think that they had a, a less, less of a connection with God because they weren't in Jerusalem. They were quite clear that what they were doing was interpreting and actualizing their own texts and praying in a way that they, they said they were praying with the angels. Right? They believed that what they were doing, and this is, I'm not just talking about one text or one tiny community, whether it's Alexandria, whether it's the scrolls that were found at Qumran, there are hordes and hordes of texts, over a thousand identified scrolls from Jewish communities. This is, this is, a, this is a, a collection that goes well beyond that one site, 13 miles south of Jerusalem. It's very close. They say that they're in Galut. We're going to talk about that tomorrow a little bit. But these people understand themselves even in Diaspora, even in Alexandria, while the Second Temple is standing, that they are doing the work of the divine work. They're doing holy work. And they're doing work in conjunction with angels, and they believe that their prayer is effective. They believe that their prayers, that their tefillot, are efficacious. So how do we do this, right? I've jumped, right? I've jumped by talking about paralysis, fear of near, loss of everything, and then I talked about the confidence of building, the confidence of spiritual growth and reconnecting with God even after the, a devastating destruction. So I would like to suggest three different ways that we're going to, to, to see this happen. Um, I, perhaps I should step back for a moment and say, I keep alluding to this. Today we're looking at Tanakh. We're just looking at examples of Tanakh, many of which will be very familiar, many of which will be less familiar to you. The first day is Tanakh. We're looking at really responses to the first Chorban, the first destruction. Tomorrow, we're going to devote ourselves to thinking about the scrolls, a creative, very courageous um, 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 uh, response from many, many different texts, the kind of interpretation and actualization of texts. And day three... I want to look at some responses to the Greek-speaking community um, that, that is Philo of Alexandria um, or then Sira's grandson. And I want to think about Jews in Greek-speaking diaspora and I want to evaluate their creativity and their confidence to overcome destruction. So we're going to look kind of at three different locations. 
What I'm about to say now applies to all three days. So even if you can only come to day one and day three, you'll still be able, I'm giving you kind of a map of what I'm going to do for the next, for the next three days. And I also want to say that everything I'm doing is kind of walking backwards. That is, my insights and understanding is as a 21st century Jew very much shaped by the thought world of Chazal, of the rabbis. So not to say that my readings are anachronistic, but that the vitality of the tradition of which I speak comes out of my own, my own experience as well as very informed by later developments in rabbinic texts from these earlier texts, Bible and Second Temple. Okay? So I, I promised three ways of connecting. This is not, by the way, the only way that this happens, but I want to characterize three major ways in which the texts of the, from Tanakh, from the Bible, throughout the Vayetsheni period, try to reconnect the text. So try to, try to map out what we're going to see actually in Ezra and Ezra Nehemiah today. Um, this dichotomy, right, this impossible overcoming of Bechi and Simcha, right, this is made explicit. How can you overcome, how can you overcome the loss and re-experience joy? Jonathan Lear's language is radical hope. I prefer to call it muted hope. That is, we continue to hope, but we never forget. We never forget who, who was killed. We never forget the tragedy. We never forget the loss. And the language of Simcha is the language of confidence and of hope. It's the language of prayer again. It's the language, the Eich Nashir et Shir Adonai Alad Mat How can we sing a song of Zion on foreign land is the expression of Bechi. The language of Simcha is being able to pray again, even after destruction, even after loss, even in exile. Three responses. One is to re-inhabit sites of memory. One is to re-inhabit sites of memory. What are these sites? What, what are we talking about? Well, it's a really interesting development in our own past. Yerushalayim becomes Atra de lo Atra, a place which is not a place in later Kabbalistic sources. Even in a time of Galut, Yerushalayim is still our place. We still go back and we visit one of the most outward walls. This is something that's relevant to all of us today in, in, this, in this context. But to think not just about Yerushalayim with a temple, but Yerushalayim without a temple. We go back, we visit, we re-inhabit, and we rebuild. Whether we rebuild a community, whether we co constitute a group as Ezra did, Ezra Nehemiah did, of priests and leaders for the community, whether we try to map on, and here I'm just talking about Ezra Nehemiah, Zerah HaKodesh, a kind of, literally, a holy seed, a holy line, so that we have a sense of genealogy and past. Another, so one site is Yerushalayim. Another site would be the desert. This is an incredible fact. Throughout our history, people go into the desert to reconnect with God in order to re-enter Yerushalayim. So we have many texts from the Second Temple period. It's a very strange phenomenon where people go to the desert in order to, what is it? Is it a recreation of Sinai? Is it a recovery of place that's no place? Those of you that are somewhat familiar, I'll give you one, one example that you might never have thought of in this context. Um, if you thought about the, the sukim from Yechezkel that are said during the service of the Brit Milah, 
That language is about abandonment of a child in the desert and a transformation and hope again. Prophecy again in desert. And this comes up all over Yeshayahu, all over Yirmiyahu. We're going to see one example today. And Yeshayahu especially. Those are not the only places that happens. But the idea is that you return to a place of hope. You return to the desert, which on the one hand is wilderness and empty. I'm thinking of someone like T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, which is nothing. But then you contrast it with a kind of hope and fertility that Chazal turns Sinai into. You all know about the Midrashim, about the mountain with flowers everywhere. The concept of wilderness, which becomes a miraculous context for hope again and life, becomes the locus for hope for many of these communities throughout the Second Temple period. We will look at one specific example tomorrow, but there are many examples where one of the texts from Qumran, they say, oh, the leader, our leader, our teacher of righteousness, went back into the, de- the desert. They call it Galut. This is not Galut, my friends. This is 13 miles outside of Yerushalayim. It's a three-day walk. Right? These people were back and forth in Yerushalayim, but they try to recreate the Midbar so that they can recreate the going into Eretz Israel, so they can re-experience hit Galut after Galut. They can re-experience revelation after exile. That's one. I have other examples of sight, but I'm going to leave it with that. So how, how do we respond to rededication and destruction? So one was reconnecting with sites of memory and moving forward. This is not just about looking back. This is not only about trying to recover David HaMelech's Yerushalayim. This is also about a confidence to move forward. It's a hope for innovation and for creativity, despite, despite the heaviness of mourning and of Bechi the insurmountable tragedy. Second, it's the figures. And I already alluded to this earlier today. What role does Moshe play, or does Akiva play, or does Yirmiyahu play in the continued writing of new texts? And the answer is not one that's easy. I think sites of memory is easy for us to understand. We, we understand to go back to a place of tragedy or a place of hope and to remember what had happened there. This is harder for us because especially there are many students here. The first thing you learn in a college seminar right now are the rules of plagiarism and forgery. The first thing they say, I'm warning you, you cannot, you, you can, you, you, you cannot um, copy you know, you have to do your own work. The web, the dangers of the web, I actually don't think it's dangerous. I think it's an extraordinary explosion with tremendous hope and creativity. I learn every day from my children about how this is teaching us how to learn more and faster. But there are also dangers of plagiarism, of taking other people's work. The rabbis and, and, and also Second Temple Jews have a very interesting relationship with the past. In the absence of new, new prophets, in the absence of kings, the understanding is that in some way, David HaMelech continued to write Tehillim. What does that mean, he continued to write Tehillim? So I write a mizmor and I say, oh, David HaMelech wrote it and I ask you to pray it and we all pretend that he's still present to us. It's much more subtle than that. Halacha Moshe Sinai. The law of Moses at Sinai is a category of law. The Chazal understand that Moshe's presence in a very deep way continues to be with us long after Moshe's death. Long after Yirmiyahu's death, there are keynotes, there are laments that are linked to the figure of Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu continues to inspire writers and people who write kina. How do you lament? You look at 
Yirmiyahu and you do what Yirmiyahu did. You look at Echa. Right? Echa, Chazal tell us, this is the and what's more from the chapter 36 of Yirmiyahu. He, he wrote keynote and more over the, the destruction and the, 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 the failure of the kings. He had to write more. What is the more? Chazal tell us in Echa Rabbah, the more is, is Echa. So we look to him and we learn how to write keynote. Um, we we want to understand how to reflect on philosophy and wisdom. We look at Shlomo HaMelech. <coughs> and we talk about, and this is much more relevant to the Greek-speaking community in the late Second Temple period and even after the destruction of the Second Temple. There are many texts that came to be linked with Shlomo HaMelech. Now, you can look at me and say, come on, you know, they weren't stupid, right? They know what forgery is. But it's not about forgery. And we're going to look at one really interesting example tomorrow where there are a number of texts that are linked to Moshe. Could Moshe have written them? No. But the, the community authorizes it by linking it to Moshe or by linking prayer to David HaMelech. Chazal understood that very, very deeply. Chazal understood David HaMelech not only to be a king, not only to be a sofer, an exemplary writer, almost a composer, but also a navi, that the prayers that he wrote were prophetic. Why? Because in... In the spirit of the one who was Naim's wrote Yisrael, the one who was the sweet singer of songs, new, new Mizmorim were created and inspired and then they were prayed. Whether they're Piyutim from the 4th century, whether they're Tfilot from the 2nd century, they continued and the tradition continued. Okay, so we've got sites of memory that we're going to look for, returning to a location. We're talking about figures, different figures that we... And, you know, I, I sometimes have used this um, kind of contemporary um, New Age term, which is problematic, but I'll use it because you all know what I mean by it. It's a kind of channeling of Moshe's authority. That is, I speak, um, I, I speak for Moshe. This is um, this very famous Gemara about Moshe, you know, didn't know what was going on in the Beit Midrash. We all, we all know it from so many different places. Sholem wrote about it. Many scholars wrote about it. Um, rabbis love to talk about it because it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an optimistic account of Moshe didn't know what was going on in the Beit Midrash, and all of a sudden that he hears, oh, we know this law because of Moshe. This is, a, this is a mosaic law, a mosaic insight. And then Moshe's reassured. And then he understands why his hand needs to be held. With the, there are different versions of this Midrash, but why his hand needs to be held um, and why he's delaying the, the people um, before he comes down the mountain. I say this to you because this is a very serious move. This is not just funny. It's not just a light way of accessing a figure like Moshe or Yirmiyahu. In the absence of the community and the place, the Urim and Tumim, the Kohanim, this is a period of paralysis. How can we sing a song is an expression of paralysis and mourning and freezing in place. Many Jews were lost in this moment of devastation. Many Jews never found their way back, both physically and spiritually. And, my, and part of what I want to offer today is that there is a way back after devastation, but it's one that never forgets the past as it moves forward. So it's a very heavy burden, but it's full of hope nevertheless. The third is a little bit harder, is a little bit harder to think about. So I talked about sites of memory, I talked about figures. The third is concepts. There are certain concepts that are communicated to us 
very early on um, in our biblical texts that continue to be accessed and they continue to be meaningful. You know this, this term which is used um, by people who are environmentalists here, and I know at least one of them in the room, possibly two, um, um, repurposing. Right? The language of repurposing is a very important term to us. We think about our own society and our own environment. We knew as Jews in the ancient world we needed to repurpose, we needed to reuse the text of our past because that's what formed us. I'll give you one example, and that's the concept of chokhmah, of wisdom, right? That the idea of wisdom being created already in Mishli, already in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is created from the very beginning. This concept of wisdom, primordial wisdom, wisdom from the creation of the world, from the very beginning, continues to shape and inspire us centuries after the destruction of the temple, in diaspora especially. So engaging the wisdom of the other, engaging the world of the other as a way of sustaining ourselves intellectually and spiritually becomes a very central concept for Jews living in diaspora, especially in the first century of the Common Era. And as I said, our third day, we're going to look a little bit about what happens, what happens to Moshe, what happens to concepts of revelation in the hands of someone like Philo of Alexandria. There are many important um, concepts. One in particular is, the, um, is writing as, as magical. And, and I'd rather look at texts with you than, um, than talk about this too extensively now because I want to s- soon turn to some of the texts of today. Um, but concepts as well as figures are repurposed or reused. Now you might say these figures or texts are reused because we have nothing now. Right, this sense of Yiri Data Dorot, the loss of the past that can never fully be recovered. But what I want to say is the repurposing of earlier texts and making them relevant in our own community is the kind of vitality that gives birth to new texts. There's a kind of vitality and determination which becomes the response to devastation and destruction throughout the history of Judaism. And I'd like to suggest to you today that it's as early as any of the texts we have to try to respond to destruction and loss. Okay. So I talked to you thus far today about inheritance, right? The inheritance of the past and the present. I talked to you about um, repurposing of earlier materials through interpretation and a kind of determined creativity. All of this, in a way, is a kind of, and here I'm coming um, at the heels of, of Hanukkah. I'm, I'm going to end our three sessions with a, an eye towards Purim, but we're literally standing between Hanukkah and Purim. This language of rededication is an important theme for many of the texts throughout the Second Temple period. Sometimes it's metaphorical, sometimes it's literal with respect to the Temple. Um, okay, let me pause for a moment. Um, before I turn to some of the questions we're going to think about today with specific texts, and let me see if there are any questions, general questions for the larger framework that I've offered today. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that's much later than what I'm talking about. I mean, we're, we're talking much, much later, um, but we're talking um, kind of uh, uh, Byzantine and early medieval. But, but um, 
the question does not, it, it, it's not over. It's not over. My, my expertise and also the focus of my three classes is in a much earlier period. But if it resonates for you in later periods, it should, and also you should stay the rest of the day because um, part of what um, Wendy Amsalem and her team at Drisha have organized is a series of talks that only start with antiquity but move forward in time. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to move um, f from the first destruction of the temple to the second destruction back and forth. And actually what I'm going to do before I turn to Yirmiyahu, which is my first text today, is do a little bit of a historical overview. Just I'm going to give some firm dates on, on our board and think about it a bit more. So j just to help, um, to help us very quickly. Yes. Yes. So the rabbis were also very troubled. Oh, so, so the, the, the question is, what do we know really about the Persian period? That's the question. And the answer is um, very little from the Jewish sources. What we know, we know from Herodotus. We know from material culture. We know from Cyrus's cylinder seal. I'm going to put that date up on the board. So you're, you're, the last two questions were very related. Let me talk a little, just a little history. Um, but I want to begin the answer by saying... The rabbis, when they talk about this period, they know very little. It's kind of a dark period from the perspective of um, Seder Olam Rabbah, for example. Um, but let me, um, let me just put a few dates on the board. And I'm actually going to put three dates, I feel. Um, very, it's very, actually, I'm going to put four dates on. And like, like the rabbis, I'm going to walk backwards. I'm going to start with 134, 132 to 134. CE. What is that event? Tragedy. What is that? Bar Kokhba. What we know about the Bar Kokhba period, that was the most devastating place for the Jewish people historically. We know it archaeologically. We're talking about complete and utter decimation of communities during that period. The revenge that was taken has a lot to do with the rabbis giving up, in a sense, on trying to rebuild a third temple. Um, it was so extensive. Our periods of mourning, our periods of devastation, some of you might know Shia Cohn from Harvard, he's written about the way in which the rabbis remember 70 as the watershed, but really it was the period of 132 to 134, and it couldn't be assembled, it couldn't be integrated. Into, the trauma was so extraordinary. What they remembered was 70. And I say this to you because the history of responses to the first and second temple periods have a lot to do with what happened in 132 to 134 and even, even beyond that. But let's walk backwards a little bit more. So I told you, let's, let's take a look at the destruction of the second temple in 70, after which the communities tried to respond, again, to a templeless Judaism. And um, Renee asked me a moment ago, are you talking about the first temple, the second temple? What exactly are we speaking about? Many of the texts we're going to look at, clearly, and especially day two and day three, have not fully overcome the destruction of the first temple. So with the destruction of the second temple, there's a kind of continued devastation. 
And in fact, some of you that are familiar with the keynote that we say on Tisha B'Av will often note not just, not just the comparison of the first destruction and the second destruction, but sometimes when they're talking about the second destruction, they're really talking about the first destruction. What's happening? Why are Jews talking about the first destruction of the temple after 70? Like, what, what's happening? It's almost like this period in between never happened, and we're still waiting for a rebuilt second temple. They actually speak in those terms. This is part of the devastation, part of the trauma that I'm trying to study and I'm trying to think with you about today. Why after 70, after the destruction of the second temple, would people say, I'm Ezra, writing after the, sec- after the first temple? Or talk about Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, or Yirmiyahu, as though they're mourning over 70, as though it was the first temple. There's a kind of failure to overcome the devastation of the first temple. There's a failure to realize the promises of Yeshayahu and Yirmiyahu throughout the second temple period that gave way to apocalypticism, right, catastrophic calculation, early Christianity, and ultimately a rabbinic response to devastation and destruction. That is, how do we continue to survive in the absence of temple? There's a lot of accommodation to history and to devastation and destruction that these texts needed to figure out, needed to um, accommodate. 538 is an important moment for two of the texts we're going to look at today because we have a historical record of Cyrus, of Persia, giving permission for peoples to go back and pray to their gods, but not for political independence in 538. It's a cylinder seal. You know, if, if anybody knows anything about Koresh, what's the most important thing we know about Koresh, either from the end of Divrei or the beginning of Ezra Nehemiah? Sorry? He allowed them to go back. He's actually, exactly, he's actually, they say he has Ruach HaKodesh. Right? He's said to be a kind of inspired figure. So here's one of these moments where we see a Jewish context, and here we have a few people smiling and laughing for a moment. What does it mean to retell history in the terms of Jewish emancipation, um, and the answer is, you know, this is a, an understanding, a deep, profound belief and understanding that we're able to return because of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right? We're able to return because of the grace of the chesed of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not because of Koresh, but Koresh is, then becomes an Eved Hashem. It's, a, it's an extraordinary account in Divrei HaYamim and Ezra Nehemiah. That's 538. So we have the, dis- the destruction of the first temple, we have the permission to come back in a period of time which is very, very foggy. It's not just one or two people here that don't understand. I just got a phone call yesterday um, from, a, from a, a, you know, a colleague who we're still, talking about, we're still talking about how to identify what's the time period. Can we say exactly when Ezra and Nehemiah were building and rebuilding? We don't, have, we don't have the details that we would like to have from this period. Um, there's also a period in here, right? approximately 186, etc., where there's a Hasmonean um, monarchy, right? So there, there is political independence for the Jews for about a century, which we often don't talk about, which the rabbis also forgot about. And I don't mean forgetting like, um, like they forgot to remember. They, they remember to forget, right? It, it's a very important, it's a very important part of what we remember about the Maccabees and what we forget about the Maccabees. Okay. So that's my little overview, um, um, just to kind of orient you with a couple of moments. Um, so, 
what, what do I, what do I want to do? What do I want to do with you today? Um, I want to teach some texts with you. I want to teach some biblical texts. I don't want to jump directly into texts that are less familiar from Qumran or from Philo, texts that are not our holy texts, you know, extra biblical texts. I want to start with the texts that are our Sifrei Kodesh, literally our holy books, and I want to see what kind of struggle or response Yirmiyahu, Yechezkel, Zechariah have, how they present these themes. And I very deliberately used certain phrases over the past 40 minutes or so to hopefully help you think in these terms. Um, before, um, I think what I'd like to do is just give you, um, there are two things I'm going to give you. One is kind of a, a key that Wendy kindly prepared with the biblical texts and the pages in the JPS bilingual edition. Right? So those of you that are more familiar or comfortable with the Hebrew, you can work in the Hebrew. Those of you that, are more fam- that want to use the English kind of to consult, you have a bilingual edition in front of you. And the second thing, and first, before you, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you a favor. I'm going to hand these out to you, but before you start diving in and we have a little bit of independent time to learn with the people either you came with or people that you're sitting next to, or if you'd prefer to read them on your own, that's fine. Um, I, no? Yes? Yeah. So, um, so here, you want to, um, thank you. So everyone should get, thank you very much, everyone should get two sheets. Um, so there's a sheet of questions, and then there's a, a sheet of Mariam Ekomot, of, of biblical texts. Um, and I'm going to, but before, I mean, certainly take a look at it, but before you start looking at the text, I want to explain what, what I'd like you to do for the next little while. And um, what, um, what I'd like to do is, as you're going through the sheet, I'm just going to walk around and speak individually with some of you, if you'd like. Those of you that would prefer to read on your own, that's also okay. Um, and then we'll come back together. But first, let me explain the choice of texts. Okay. 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 The first thing I want to do, and I just want to make sure again, because some of some people just recently came in. We didn't, prepare, we didn't Xerox the biblical text because we don't need to. I want to make sure that everyone has a Tanakh with them that they can use, and everyone should have two sheets. One is just a sheet of Mari Makomot, of, of sources that we're going to look at, and one is a set of questions. Okay? Okay. All right? See, everyone should have two sheets. I think a lot of people don't have the sheet of Mari Makomot, but they have the questions. Okay. Yeah, this whole row needs the Mari Makomot. Okay, thank you. Okay. 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 All right. Thank you. Okay, so some of the questions that I've asked are less than straightforward. The first thing I want to say about the questions that you have before you, connected, obviously they're linked, right? There's the Mari Makomo, there's the sources that I've asked you to look at from the biblical text. Some are larger texts, some are three psukim long. Like, so it ranges, right? So, um, but, but there isn't a single right answer. And what I'd like to do with these questions is think about them with you 
Um, but I also want to say, before I give my little um, introduction to the sources, I want to say that I don't care where you start. Um, that is, you can start with the questions that are most exciting to you. You don't have to go, there's no sequence to the questions. They're all addressing the larger question of surviving destruction from a number of different vantage points. But I also want to orient you historically a little bit with all of the sources so you know what period you're thinking about in light of the overview that I just provided you with. Okay? Sounds good? Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about the questions that I've asked you to do and what I want you to look for. Yirmiyahu Lamed Lamed Aleph is often called Sefer Tikva or Sefer Tshuva. It's the Rachel Mevaka Albaneha passage that many of us know from Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, right? So the language of, of hope and loss, um, muted hope, we can call that, that tension of Bechi and Simcha, of which I spoke, around, uh, I spoke about earlier, earlier today. Um, what I want to suggest in this little pericope from Yirmiyahu Lamed Lamed Aleph, you also see the struggles of Al-Naharot Bavel, of Psalm 137. How do you sing? And then ultimately, I haven't talked yet about Psalm 137. I want to return to that at the very end of my class today. You see a, a kina at the end. They do sing, but they don't sing shira. They sing kina. Um, and, I, and I ask you again, those of you that are a little more familiar with, with Megillat Eicha, with Lamentations, so you can do something a little bit more in the answer of your, in, in, as you think together with your chavrusa or with your group of people that you're looking at. How do they relate to the sequence of mourning and recovery? And what you can hear in my thinking is that Yirmiyahu Lamad Lamad of chapters 30 to 31 actually map on to a series of responses to trauma, of dysfunctionality, of pain. There's enormous kind of pain, discussion of wounds, literally wounds and, and seething wounds. That, that Yirmiyahu is using as a metaphor for understanding the pain and devastation of the destruction of the first temple. How is healing, how is healing put on the table? And my answer to you is that Yirmiyahu gives you multiple answers. There isn't a single way out. Um, again, I think there's some deep connections with, um, with the book of Echa. There are many reasons why, although Echa is never said in the biblical text to be written by Yirmiyahu, why the rabbis understood Echa to be written by the exemplary Mikonein, the best, you know, a lamenter around, namely Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu understands how to mourn. Number one. Number two, that's a very long text, folks, so if you decide just to focus on that, that's okay. The next text is a very small text, but it gets to the point I spoke about with desert. How is revelation possible in the Kavar Canal in Bavel? Why can Yechezkel get up and tell you that he's going to receive one of the most important revelations for the history of Judaism, namely, what's he about to receive in Yechezkel chapter 1? Anybody? Masa Merkava, that's right. And he gets it in exile. He gets it in exile. That's text number two. Text number three is um, Zechariah. It's a very complicated text, and it's a text that talks about the loss of the past. Is there hope in Zechariah 1? What happens to prophecy and also the relationship of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to the Avot and to the Nevi'im of the past? And what, what is Zechariah offering you at the beginning of, of Zechariah? Remember, Zechariah, Malachi, and Chagai are said to be the last prophets, according to Chazal. Right? Misha metu Chagai, Zechari, Malachi, Pascha, Nevoami, Yisrael, from Tosef Sota. When these three guys die, something's removed, it's gone. Zechariah is one of these guys. What's happening? 
Is this about devastation and loss, or is this about hope? Yeah. Um, I'm actually really excited. Most of you have already started reading the text. It's very sweet. I also can't stop myself when I have the text in front of me. Of course I read them. But get, hold on two more minutes with me if you can. And um, I'm excited for you to read these texts with me and um, on your own. But let's look at three more. That's actually more than three. But let's look at the three questions together. Give me two more minutes. And then um, um, the next three questions are different. One I've already started to answer for you. But I want you to look at this text from Ezra. Ezra Gimel, Ezra chapter 3. It's a fascinating text. Nobody talks about this. Why is it Bechi and Simcha? Chazal knew about it, about not being able. There's that very, very famous Gemara. What do you mean you can't tell the difference between Bechi and Simcha? And actually, I never understood that until I had kids. (laughs) But once I had kids and all of a sudden your ear, is that a cry or is it a laugh? You know, and this is, but, but it's a funny moment. Is it a cry or is it a laugh? And the answer is, it's both. It's both. And how, how does that work? So that's Ezra 3. It's, by the way, it's at the time of the foundation, of the foundation stone of the second temple. Why is anyone crying? What are you crying about? Right, what Chazal says to the generation who complain too much. You want to really cry? I'll tell you something. I'll, tell you, I'll give you something to cry about. Right? But here, why are they crying at all? And the answer is in, the, is in that little pericope. Um, Ezra 3, Ezra Parakimel, and Nehemiah really go hand in hand. This is about giving the Torah again. Repurposing, this is a, a word, um, a, again, for our environmentalists, repurposing Sinai. He's standing on a Migdal 8, a wooden platform. He stands up, he holds up the text. There's no lightning, there's no thunder, but the people collapse in awe. Here, what happens to Sinai in the hands of Ezra Nehemiah? Um, how is Sinai accessed in this section? And what role does Moshe play? The answer, folks, is that Moshe plays no role at all. But does Moshe not play a role? Here I'm asking you to think about location. I'm asking you to think about figure. Remember, we talked a little bit about that. And also concepts. What's the concept of revelation that's being communicated in, Ezra, in, in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 8? I want to just say this is a side point. I say Ezra Nehemiah. It's really not separate books. Very early on, the earliest example we have of Ezra Nehemiah is as a single unit which is an interesting, an interesting fact. We can talk about that tomorrow, actually, when we talk about Qumran. But, um, but Nehemiah chapter Echad, and then the last, the last one, and here I want to do a bit of history here. Um, Yeshayahu Chet is, is mourning over the destruction of the northern kingdom here. That's the loss in Yeshayahu Chet. I mean, the, the, the question of editing and the history of the text is a different matter, but this is the moment. This is about 8th century stuff. Yirmiyahu Lamed Bet, chapter 32, is in response to the destruction of the second temple. I'm sorry, the destruction of the first temple, anticipating the building of the second temple. You, uh, you all heard my correction, yes? Yirmiyahu Lamed Bet comes right after Sefer Tikvah, and this is the land deed. If you don't know the text, it's a fascinating text, especially any of you who work in real estate, or I know many of you have corporate lives and you're taking some time off from, from work to learn. But, 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 but Yirmiyahu Lamed Bet is about a land deed to signify a future. And the third text is the text that Daniel himself can't read, but it's the text that's bound up for the future, as, as in Yishayahu Chet. Um, what I want to say about these three texts is what role does the writing down of prophecy play? Um, I think the text I forgot, which is on your list. Yes, I did. I'm sorry. I forgot to put that in the... Um, oh, you know what? There's a, this is my fault. Um, you have seven, eight, and nine. No, no, you have six, seven, eight, and nine. I forgot to put seven in. Seven fits in with a written prophecy. On, on your list of Maria Macomot? 
So Zechariah chapter 5, to be distinguished from Zechariah chapter 1, is also a written prophecy. That's the flying scroll. Why is the nivuah he receives textualized? Right? What, what, and there are other texts. I mean, what I'd love to do, for those of you, for those of you that are more familiar, bring me other surprises. There are other texts I didn't put on your list of textualized prophecy. There are other examples of kinah that I didn't include. So what I'm very happy to do, both while I'm going around and um, after, after we, we, when we come back together as a group towards the end of our session today, and we talk a little bit about what you found, is also to hear other texts that were suggested to you by your reading of these texts, whether they're other tehillim, there are other sections of Tanakh that you'd like to share. So I'm very, I'm very happy to, to receive those as well. So um, what I was asked to do is, is create an environment so that you can learn a little bit on your own, so it's not all lecturing. So let's spend time now. The idea is to choose, and again, you can choose any, you start with any of the questions you want. We'll take about a half hour to 40 minutes, if that sounds good. Those of you that might need a bathroom break or just to get a quick drink of water, now would be a good time before you start kind of delving into the text come back and I'm going to wander around over the period of the half hour to 40 minutes and then we will still have a good amount of time to wrap up. And I also want to say two people already told me that they won't be coming back tomorrow just for you know, family and work reasons and things. If you have questions that we didn't get to that you'd like to write to me about, um, you know, questions that you had or insights you had to the text, you can always find me. I'm very easy to find, hindi.nyman at yale.edu. So, um, you know, feel free to write to me if, if, you, if we don't get it. We will not cover everything today. I've given you deliberately more than we could possibly, you know, think through together. So um, I'm going to wander around. I also want to ask you if there's a specific question you have as you're reading the text and you'd like to flag me down just... Um, you know, just, you know, stick, I'll keep, I'll keep my, I'll, I'll try to visit everybody, but I'll also keep my eye out for, for hands for people. Okay? Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Hi, everybody. At the risk of, um, at the risk of interrupting what seems to me um, very exciting learning sessions, um, um, I'm... Um, I'm going to ask us all to reassemble as a group for the next half hour or a little bit more um, and think together about some of the, the texts from Tanakh that we've been reading in response to the framework of surviving destruction. Um, I actually am just as inspired by the, by the chavrusas that I walked by and spoke with who got through all of the texts as by the Chavrusas that are still working on Jeremiah chapters 30, 31. So um, I want to say that um, these are very, very rich texts, and um, one needs to be slowed down by the texts and to think through some of the major theological questions and challenges that Yirmiyahu or Yishayahu are asking you to do in the face of destruction. These are not, they're not simple answers. Um, to the question of devastation and destruction. And um, a gentleman was just, you know, asking about, you know, the destruction wreaked by God, the destruction wreaked by, you know, human beings. These are the questions, the major theological questions um, and human responses of anger, of mourning, of hope, um, of giving up, of despair that are part of our tradition. I've, I've um, often um, met with students in the context of being in a university, sometimes students come to professors to talk about bad things that have happened and I've often, you know, I've often turned, you know, to them and they, they've said, well, this, you know, my, my anger or my despair takes me outside of Judaism. 
And my response is always, um, no, actually, it takes you in. That, that, that your questions, your hardest questions, be them you know, theological or philosophical, makes you part of the tradition, you know, part of the world. Um, so um, I, I, want, I want to use um, the, the precious time that we have left to reflect with you on your insights and contributions to some of these questions so I can learn from you as well as my sharing um, some of my insights with you as I did in the first hour. Um, but I also want to plant some seeds for the next couple of days. So my choice of texts is not only because they're really relevant to the question of surviving destruction and devastation and Khorban, but I also want us to think if we can, um, like almost time travel, I want us to think like Jews of antiquity um, who are still awaiting for the fulfillment of Jeremiah 30, 31 um, or Isaiah 8 and ask ourselves, the kind of impatience um, or hope or despair we might experience through their experiences. Um, okay, so let's begin um, um, with thinking with me about the stages of mourning. And I know that this first assignment took us the longest. It's a very, very rich text. And there are little texts embedded in Jeremiah 30, 31 um, that themselves require a good hour of learning. So um, what are the stages of mourning, recovery, um, and hope? And I actually, if you don't mind, um, I'm going to call upon some of you who asked me questions in the context of the Chavrusa session, and then I'll ask you some other folks to enrich it. So the, 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 the woman who spoke about the, the um, wound that's incurable. Can you raise your hand? Yes, thank you. Do you mind? Well, sorry, what's your name? So Shoshana, I'm going to reformulate. Can you, can you ask a really wonderful question if you could speak it loudly or I'll repeat it afterwards. So let me, let me, if I can add, add to it a bit more and reformulate the question so everyone up here can, can hear you as well. Um, this anushma katech, this pain, this seething, seething wound, which cannot heal. Um, how, how can one move from the state of an incurable wound or the impossibility of overcoming destruction to talking about hope, to talking about a renewed covenant in the same breath? And here we're talking about, of course, this, this unit of Jeremiah 30, 31. So... Um, you know, the part of, you know, part of what um, I wanted you to articulate here, and many of you then moved from identifying that stage of mourning or pain or the in incurable wound to looking at, at, at the Book of Lamentations, of the Book of Echa. And a number of you um, went back and forth. And what I would want to suggest is there are a series of texts that thematize devastation and destruction without asking you to move beyond that stage before you're ready. And that's exactly what's happening in Yirmiyahu. There are a number of passages that talk about the, the destruction and the devastation of the Babylonians onto the community of, um, of Israel, of Judah. Um, and we know this not only from the book of Jeremiah. If any of you have done a little bit of historical work on the Babylonian chronicles, where Nebuchadnezzar, raise your hand if any of you are familiar with the Babylonian chronicles. So, so he, he, he writes... There's a celebration of the kind of devastation that was, that was brought upon peoples. And we also have images 
from the from the, our ancient our ancient world of carrying people in nets, literally like like animals or like booty to other to other locations. So we know the kind of delight and pride that Nebuchadnezzar and his troops took in this kind of devastation. And it's in that context that I want you to read that passage about wound. But it's also in that context that I want you to read the call for revenge of Psalm 137. Right? The end of Psalm 137 is you know, celebrating people who, who, would, who would kill babies in response. It's not an excuse, but to understand the emotion of anger and revenge um, that, um, that people who have experienced this kind of devastation express. And, what's, and you know, people have often said to me, isn't it embarrassing to you that your text, your beautiful texts, um, Jews and non-Jews, celebrate revenge? And my response is, these are human beings translating the experience of God and the experience of history onto their own tradition. So to reproach someone for this response to devastation seems to me completely wrongheaded. It doesn't allow for the healing and the learning and then the, the possibility, possibility of hope that Yirmiyahu lays out before you. Um, and there are many texts that thematize this sense of loss. So let's, let's, let's take it a bit, a bit further. So we hear language in, in, in Yirmiyahu, in Jeremiah 30, 31, of pain and of suffering, which is also... Um, which, but it also gives way to something else. Before we get to the language of New Covenant, which I want to discuss, there was a wonderful question in the back about what is this New Covenant? I, um, often when I teach this to a Jewish community that haven't read as much of Jeremiah, people will often say, this is a Jewish text? I thought, I thought New Covenant and New Testament was a Christian text. It's an amazing fact that this is, this is the classical um, location for the language of New Testament, by the way. It's used from Jeremiah, but it's a Jewish text. It's a very Jewish text. But before we get to Lamed Aleph, Lamed Aleph, I'm also going to spend a lot of time, I'm so inspired by my group here, who is still reading Yirmiyahu, um, Lamed, Lamed Aleph. Um, but before we get to Jeremiah 31, 31, that passage about New Covenant, can you help me for a moment? Tell me what other stages were you able to identify in your reading of this first text? or even in your reading, and, and some of you were ambitious and looked at other parallel texts, which I was excited to see. What other stages of mourning or recovery from trauma were you able to identify in chapters 30 and 31 of Jeremiah? Yes. Yes. Yes, right. So, so um, we talked about, um, I'll just put some, you know, so there's a kind of incurable wound or pain. You know, there's also the language, um, um, you know, we can call it the language of joy. One of the people I spoke with, I'm sorry, you can't hear me, from, my, my face is away from you. The language of marriage, but it's also the language elsewhere in Jeremiah, it becomes the language of hearing the millstone. It's the language of regularity again. It's it's the smell of baking bread, or Jeremiah tells us, it's the light in the windows. Right? You know that there's life again. You know that there's life again. Um, so there's, um, there's um, the impossibility of, of breathing, not being able to breathe. Um, then there's, the, possi then there's the, the waking up in the morning again. There's bathing. And then there's the joy um, of, of marriage and, and possibility of life again. Yes? 
it did almost feel like I was making it up when I said that you know, the name was dealt with that it was just too bad that you know, basically the way that they did it was they broke down the house and right. Um, I, I want to pause for a moment. I'm, I'm going to take your, your suggestion in a moment, but I want to pause for a moment because of the way in which the voice of a woman and Sion as a woman gets thematized in this text, not only this text, but the language of hope and devastation is mapped on to Sion as, as a woman. We're going to see a text, I hope, tomorrow that does more of this in the late Second Temple period. But Rachel Mevaka Albaneha Rachel mourning over her children, and yesh tikva, there is a hope afterwards. There is the possibility of recovery, granted muted recovery. I mean, Yirmiyahu doesn't tell you to forget about the devastation and to move on. Yirmiyahu slowly pulls you through, therapeutically, pulls you through a stage of the impossibility of overcoming destruction, reflecting on, on breathing again, eating again, um, um, finding the possibility of, of a child again, um, and also understanding the, um, the, the Israel as a Israel as a woman, but a collective woman mourning. Um, absolutely, thank you for mentioning that. Absolutely, mapping on to um, um, Israel uh, or Zion herself as a woman mourning. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, it's an indulgent aside, but. I want to tell you about one text written after 70 that uses this text from Yirmiyahu, chapters 30 and 31, in mourning over the second destruction, reads, really rereads or applies our text, which is mourning over the destruction of the first temple, and describes Ezra, who didn't yet build the second temple, seeing a vision of a woman who refuses to be comforted. And he says, you have to go back to the city. You have to go back to your husband. And she says, I lost my child, my only child, after 30 years. I waited for him 30 years. He was born. And his wedding chamber, the day he was supposed to be married, the, the language of simcha and joy of Yirmiyahu, chapters 30, 31, when he was about to get married, he died. And now I've left my husband and I've left my community. And I will live in no place. I will live nowhere. And he says, Oh, get over your own mourning. Get over yourself. He says the very wrong thing. Exactly what you can't tell victims of a tragedy. Get over yourself. Overcome it. And she says, oh, no, I don't think you understand. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here, and I will die here. And then he mourns, and he rereads. It's almost like Ezra, but, or Yirmiyahu, says a paragraph from Echa. Our, our scholars have said this is our earliest kina, the earliest example of applying or interpreting Echa. And as soon as he finished his mourning, this is the fourth vision of a, of a text that's attributed to Ezra. It's not Ezra. It's Ezra after 70. It's, it's a text written by Jews trying to figure out how to mourn after the second temple. As soon as he finishes this kinah, which doesn't scream at her, but enables her mourning, recognizes her mourning, what happens? There's an earthquake. She's no longer there. He sees Sion. It's an incredible text. It gets everything. It gets all of the elements of Rachel Mavakal Banaha, Rachel mourning over her child. This is written 600 years, 500 years after the destruction of the first temple. 
the, this, this person who's writing this text is sitting in mourning and trying to figure out how to tell his community in 100 CE how to continue. And where do they go? They go to Jeremiah 30, 31. And I, I, I mention this as an aside because I want to emphasize to you again that this becomes a model text for surviving destruction. Jeremiah 30, 31 in the sequence of the Anush Makatech, the Makah, the plague, the, the, the seizing wound, the language of recovering or returning to life again, recognizing the pain of the mother over her child, her only child, invoking both the Akedah, invoking the language of Rachel, who waited her entire life for the child she couldn't see grow up. I mean, all of this is all bound up in this text. And then, I'm sorry, go ahead. You were going to say something. Go ahead. You're Yes. 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 Yes, and you know, of course, you know, um, and and um, um, from from what you say that that many of the descriptions and uh, ultimately normative halachic behavior with respect to mourning is is experienced from these texts. It's derived from many of our own biblical, many of our own biblical texts. Um, that's one response. My second response, it doesn't always work. Sometimes that week of Shiva is not enough. Or sometimes um, um, uh, um, it's a, uh, you know, a terrible, um, te- you know, terrible tragedy or loss. I'm sure we've all, unfortunately, seen people who weren't ready for the burial when a burial happened of a loved one or weren't ready to enter into the first or second or third stage of mourning. So on the one hand, it's, a, it's, it's prescriptive, but it doesn't, it's not always enough, and we have to work, and this is part of what, what I want to say, is that Yirmiyahu's struggling to help give a, a framework to think about mourning. But at the end of the day, as human beings, it's going to have a lot of different forms. The patience or the impatience, the despair and recovery, takes a lot of time, and it also becomes very personal and distinctive. Yes, in the back. Yeah. Okay, so this is, a, this is a very important question, and part of what I want to say whenever I teach these texts, um, I often want to say I'm not qualified to really answer the question, um, I mean, for, for anyone in particular, but also my, my training is as an academic, you know. Um, so someone asked about some research that was done on, on joy, and, um, joy and, and mourning and whether or not they can even live together in the same moment like they seem to in Chapter 3 of Ezra. But at the risk of... Um, of, of, well, as I, I speak as an historian, what happens in Jeremiah at the, end of this, at the end of this text? And the answer is language of new covenant. And that's exactly where I want to go. So your, your Chavrusa was asking about new covenant, right? So can you ask that, that question again? Um, you had asked or to formulate... Yes. Right, so, so that, that's a very rich 
um, it's a very rich comment. I want to start with a more general point, and then I want to return to some of the specific points about New Covenant. So those of you that, um, that didn't um, make it exactly to Jeremiah 31 or looked at other texts, and here I'm reading in the Hebrew, Here the days are coming, says Hashem, says God. And I will, make a new, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, a new covenant. This covenant, this promise is understood generally, this is Jeremiah 31, 31, to be a renewed covenant. A covenant, um, as, I said, as, as I said to you a few moments ago, um, um, it's a renewed covenant which is understood to have been fulfilled already within the Jewish community with the Second Temple period. There's no question that Ezra and Nehemiah and the community, the, 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 the book of, the, of Chronicles, Divrei Hayamim, I didn't put texts in from that, from that um, wonderful historical account of the history of reassembling worship in the temple during the second temple period. This is a text that understands itself to have an unbroken link to the past. It's full of inspiration, it's full of hope, and it's, it's full of self-authorization, that is, the traditions of the Levites of song of, um, of worship in the temple are linked to the priests, are linked to the Levites, are linked to David HaMelech, are linked to Moshe. This is throughout the book of, um, of Divrei HaYamin, throughout the book of Chronicles. And here this renewed covenant becomes part of what the Jewish community understands itself to have experienced. Um, is it the same as the previous covenant? Is it muted? Um, so one way of responding to this very important question, you know, what happens to the pain of the past, right, the, the, the earlier question, what happens to the pain um, when you move on? I mean, how, how does one move on? What's the mechanism for establishing with a kind of confidence and hope what I talked about earlier, efficacious prayer, inspired interpretation, creating new text, saying that the law that I'm describing to you is authorized by none other than Moshe Rabbeinu, than Moses, our teacher. This is an awful lot of confidence in, this, in the same breath where we just said that the wound is incurable. So part of what I want to suggest about the Brit Hadashah language is the language of renewed covenant. Go ahead, please. Right, so um, let me, this is a great question. Let me, I'm going to answer it in a brief way, but we will have more time to discuss it tomorrow. So um, in, you're talking about the book of Deuteronomy, right, where there's a discussion of the Navi Sheker, the false prophet. And, you know, is this, I think you're partly asking about the way in which New Covenant seems to give a different set of rules with early Christianity and the use of New Covenant in that context. Um, or unfulfilled, many of you have asked me about unfulfilled promises in Yirmiyahu. How does that work with a community that's still awaiting um, a, um, a covenant le'olam of the second temple? What, how, how, do you, how do you kind of deal with all of this? So um, in brief, what I want to say, the Jewish community understood and continues to understand itself to have renewed its covenant with God, um, returning from exile in the context of the second temple period, but also... Um, 
redefined itself, and here I'm really talking about the rabbinic project of textualizing the work of um, what was worship in the Beit HaMikdash to worship and prayer in the home and, and in the study houses um, and in the community. That is to build a community which itself prays together, studies together. I mean, this is, this is something that, that, um, that we value as a Jewish community, but never forgetting what was lost. So, so this is why I use the language of renewed covenant, which is the way people have translated Brit Hadasha, that it's not new a replacement, but it's new an extension. And those of you that had a chance to look at the beginnings of Zechariah Aleph, chapter 1 of Zechariah, um, in your preparations, would see the language of breaking of the old, but nevertheless an ambition for the new. And there's a hope, which again, seems um, in some sense unsustainable. And part of what I want to say is that it's... It, <laughs> Working with, with God and with community leaders, the Second Temple Jewish leaders, prophets and priests, many of them were both, and scribes. That means they're not just copying, but they're creating. And what you saw from, if you got a chance to look at the text from Ezra and Nehemiah, these are leaders for the community that everyone's looking to. They're not just simply copying a text faithfully. They're interpreting, they're rendering it accessible. Um, and they are um, filling it again with vitality. That's really what Nehemiah Chet is talking about, chapter 8 of Nehemiah. So this renewal, this new possibility, and this new hope that is embedded in Jeremiah 31 um, is, um, is, hmm, is going to be used by, um, by the Jewish community talking about continuity and possibility. But um, I, this is kind of an aside. Uh, the early Christian community themselves understood themselves to be Jews. I mean, they were, they were Jews. They were part of the Jewish community. They inherit the biblical materials, and they took it in a very different direction in the face of disappointment with prophetic texts. This is written all over. There are lots of texts. The most famous one that uses language of New Covenant is Epistle to the Hebrews. Um, but, but there are other places where New Covenant comes up. Um, why the, the Jews absolutely understood Jesus to be a Navi Sheker, a false prophet. Um, there are Jews that understood themselves to have found a new hope and a new direction um, um, with, the, with the early Christian movement. I mean, that, what's called the early Jesus movement. Um, I, I'm not going to say much more about that right now, um, but, it is the, but this is one way in which you can see how intimately connected the early Christians were with the early rabbinic movement. And many people have, have written about, um, about this even in, rec in the recent decade, about understanding how deeply connected even modes of interpretation. New Testament is not a separate set of texts. It keeps applying or extending um, our biblical texts as a way of extending and building on Jeremiah 31. But I actually want to return to our Second Temple, um, our Second Temple project um, and to think, to, think about, to think about the ways in which not, not, I'm happy to look at the way other communities have used our text to talk about vitality and, and what it means to no longer be recognizably a Jewish community. At what point were these Jews no longer part of our own community? And they had an independent group. But I'm also interested in, uh, in how we, we created the new, a new covenant or renewed covenant for us in the face of devastation, in the face of an incurable wound. Yes.
first term of construction is just a bit of rubble. But it actually took the second term of the Friedman perspective that this kind of this forms kind of the trend that a lot of or this is a condition we have to deal with is causing us loss, rebuilding ourselves, and then that continues throughout the whole of our lives. So, so um, I, I take your comment um, very, very deeply, and I want to pause for a moment to talk about ways in which I think it's 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 deeply it's deeply true historically for the Jewish community. And when the when Jews, in the face of of the destruction in '70, choose not to talk about '70, but choose to talk about 586, right BCE when Jews are not talking about the devastation of the Romans to the second temple, but they are talking about the devastation of Nebuchadnezzar to the first temple. And they put their mourning and anger and devastation not directed at the Romans, but directed at the Babylonians and cannot process the trauma. There are historical and political reasons for doing this. But I also want to suggest that there are therapeutic reasons for doing this. And there's a concept translated into English, nachtreglichkeit, or afterwardsness, where scholars have looked at the ways in which, after the destruction of 70, it's the first destruction that is thematized and accommodated or integrated into our past, into our understanding. This is another way of answering your question. How does one overcome destruction? Right, the, the, the lady in the, in the back. So th- this, this, is, this is a very important question, but... That's not the only example. So here I want to extend your insight, which is absolutely right, one step further. This is what I was saying earlier. After the devastation of the Bar Kokhba revolt and devastation to Jewish communities, um, to whole communities, never recovered, flattened, just completely flattened. In Psalm 137, Aru, Aru, Ara just render the land naked and completely devastated. The devastation was unparalleled for the Jewish community, archaeologists have argued, during the Bar Kokhba revolt. The rabbis don't talk about Bar Kokhba. What do they talk about as the moment of devastation? Seventy. Seventy. They talk about seventy. So how to process this goes back to how can one, your question about this incurable wound, the answer is it can't be overcome. It's overcome through an earlier an earlier devastation, or it might take a bit of time to begin to talk about, to begin to talk about it. Scholars have debated, when could Eicha have been written? Was it an eyewitness account, or was it a process of reflection and curing and therapy? Why is Yechezkel writing 30 years after the devastation, right, that you saw the Kavar Canal, 30 years after the destruction, he, he figures out how to connect with God again, prophecy is possible in exile 30 years afterwards. Is this a period of mourning? Is it a period of reflection? Does it give him the time to formulate the vocabulary for responding to that initial destruction? Yes? Also, by the time you get to 135, they've already survived the 70. So it's, it's as if, you know, this happened to us in 586. So again, the vitality or determination or hope through survival, 
the question is, what does it take to thrive? And what does it take to be um, um, vital um, and flourishing is the word I'm looking for. Yes. Well, I, so my, my response is twofold. So the first part is yes. The second part is going to be what we see for the next two days, which is the use of earlier texts. So returning to an earlier period, a set of authorizing texts that are formative for the identity and the beliefs of a community is also part of what they're doing. By calling upon Yirmiyahu, by calling upon the book of Jeremiah to help us learn what the sequence of mourning is or the exemplar lamenter who understands how to lament and guide us through a period of destruction where looking towards the past for authoritative figures whether it's Moshe or Yirmiyahu and to use their text to help direct us but it doesn't stop there our community doesn't stop there it continues writing and with the time that remains I actually want to reflect on some of the last texts on your list just for the last 10 minutes or so I know I know that their texts that you looked at, which I haven't had a chance to fully address. But I want to look at what um, my teacher, um, James Kugel, has called textualized prophecy. Um, uh, and the ways in which prophecy, in the face of destruction and devastation, plays, um, a, a, a writing sums, comes to play a very central role. There are a number of texts where a written document or a written text, symbolic or literal, plays this very central role in authorizing the Second Temple community. So what did you find? <laughs> there are lots of examples I gave you, and they're all different. They're wildly different, and a number of you have asked me about them over the period of, um, over the, the, the Chavrusa period, the, your learning period together. What did you find? Yes? Some of them seem to be about Right, so, so there are two texts in particular that did that in very different ways. What did you have in mind? Oh, that, that's, that's a third one, which is wonderful. So Yeshayahu Chet, so chapter 8 of Isaiah, is asking us to put texts away for a future time. So there's an authorized text that's wrapped up, bound, um, and it's put away for a future time. Lilimudai, for my teachings, for my students. People have debated this very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful text, which offers a possibility and very important phrase in that chapter which we, you must remember for tomorrow. Put, put away Torah v'te'udah, the law book and the testimony, the witness. Is it a second text? In, in, the, in the, some second temple text, they seem to read it as the written Torah and maybe something else, which we come to understand as two Torot, oral and written, oral and something else, um, written and something else. So there's Isaiah 8. What else? You mentioned, uh, I, you were also thinking about, okay, so Nehemiah Chet. So chapter 8 of Nehemiah is an extraordinary example where you have um, Ezra standing on a, literally, a Migdal 8, right? He's standing on a tower of wood, and he performs revelation again. Um, and in that context, and I assume, what, what's your name? I'm sorry? Ruth. Ruth. 
So Ruth is clearly referring to the very end of that passage. It's unclear. Some, some, uh, some people say this is the earliest example of Aramaic translation. This might be Targum. They didn't understand. They came back, they didn't understand. So maybe that's what the inter interpretation is happening. Or maybe he's just explaining it to them. But to be sure, it's a revelation of the law again, which is definitive and authoritative for the Second Temple community. Um, and text itself plays this central role. Is this mediated revelation through a text because we don't have pr prophecy? There's nothing apologetic in this text, folks. This is the way some people have looked at it. Well, this is mediated. It's a lesser form. Where does it look like it's lesser? Quite to the contrary. There's a celebration of gaining access to the past through the present. Gaining access to the past through the present. This is nothing but a miraculous achievement. To have the text again, to perform it again, to reveal it again. You collapse like B'nai Israel collapsed when they couldn't listen to the word of God. And here they listen. Yes. <coughs> Well, I mean, throughout the Second Temple period, there's Torah Moshe, there's Sefer Torah Elohim, there's Sefer Torah. So um, some of you might know, just because she's a very famous uh, woman biblicist, one of my heroes, Sarah Yafet, has written about all the different ways in which Torah is used as... Um, a way, different ways in which we name this authoritative body of literature which then directs us. Um, but Sefer Torah Moshe or Torah Moshe is actually a much broader category as we learn very early on in Second Temple Judaism than Pentateuch, than Chumash. It's a much broader category. I, I don't know if that addresses the question. Um, but there, there are, um, it becomes a tradition not only of text but of text and interpretation. Perhaps what Yeshayahu meant by Torah and Teudah, Torah and testimony. Um, but there are many places throughout Ezra Nehemiah, and perhaps this is what you had in mind, where Torah Moshe seems to be referring to laws that we only know about as Midrashic interpretations from a much later period. So what does that mean? Do they not know what Chumash is? Or do they understand Chumash to be a much broader category? I'll give you one more response. This is a, a wonderful and very important question for us as we come to think about what is Torah Moshe, or in Greek, nomos museos, right? The law of Moses um, in, the con in the contemporary Greek-speaking communities. How many of you have ever taken a look at Psalm 119? It's really, really long. It goes on and on and on. And it's so many different ways to think about Torah and Torah study, but it seems to be much bigger than Torah itself. And, and I mention this to you because the, what it means to authorize oneself through the past and through a kind of textualized past is bigger than Chumash itself. Torah Moshe, the law of Moses, seems to be a larger, a larger category. Um, I want, um, in, in the, um, I, I understand that you've, you, you, you're here for a long day today and I, I want to give you a chance to, um, to take a break when it's scheduled. I want to just, I have a few more minutes that I just want to share some thoughts with you about these texts, if you don't mind, and then um, and, as a way of preparing for tomorrow. The texts of Isaiah 8, Jeremiah 32, Daniel 12, those very last texts that you looked at are about 
authorizing a kind of written prophecy, sometimes as a land deed. It can be through a symbolic, wild kind of flying text. It can also be through a text that's saved for another time. Textualized prophecy in the magical linking of writing and, and um, divine authorization come to be linked at a time when the Jews were accessing Moses and Jeremiah through texts. And this became, and the correct interpretation of the text was the way to understand how to pray and how to read and how to live as Jews inside a world of temple, but also in a world that became or was already templeless Judaism, a Judaism without a temple. Even during the Second Temple period, there were communities that withdrew from the temple community and lived a life outside of temple. And I want to leave, what, raise your hand, the, the woman who asked me about prayer, ongoing prayer. Um, oh, I, I think she, um, so prayer was, someone said to me, well, did prayer happen after 70? Um, and, you know, in response, and obviously thinking about um, were the prayers established, like it says in Tractate Brachot of the Babylonian Talmud, to correspond to the sacrifices. And my response is, yes, there is a way in which the order and structuring of prayer throughout the day does respond to a kind of holding pattern, if you will, for, um, for the korbanot, for the sacrifices. But the rabbis also offer a very interesting parallel account of prayer already be established by the patriarchs, by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And part of what we will see tomorrow is prayer is already very much a part of the ancient Jewish community long before the destruction of the first temple and the second temple. They, sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes they seem rather independent. And I mention this to you as a kind of... Um, um, a kind of linked concept, prayer and interpretation are going to go hand in hand in the texts that we see tomorrow. And this is very important because in the absence of a temple, how, how are they going to imagine themselves praying with angels and with God? This is how they describe themselves. You know, praying with angels. Yes? Oh, so you're asking me to make a distinction between Abraham as an Ivri and the Jewish community after they are constructed as... Right, so, so um, that, 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 let me, let me you know, in, in, very, in, in brief, um, this is a, um, a much more complicated question. Um, as Jews today, we understand Abraham to be Jewish. The distinction of ancient Israelite religion versus later Judea and Judaism is a Protestant biblical definition. It's not a Jewish way of understanding who Abraham was in the context of thinking about the tr what I'm looking at is the transformation of the Jewish community and how a figure like Abraham was received and understood and interpreted. To give a class, and, and I'm happy to talk to you about this more, of thinking about you know, ancient Israelite religion and you know, suzerain treaties um, in, in 12th century BCE is a very different account of how to understand the Genesis pericopes. Right? So, um, so I'm really looking at the reception and transformation of Tanakh as a Jewish book. Um, so, so, so Jewish to be, uh, you know, if you want to understand, and this is, this is, a, this is um, a, a kind of what we call a sidebar, but it's a great question because 
um, to understand the history of the formation of Jewish communities um, and how it um, developed over time. Is what we're doing is both historical and, and theological in this particular class. I'm happy to give you like a, a large reading list that challenges someone like Mark Brettler who would challenge the distinction that you're making with respect to Abraham as an Israelite. Um, it, it's, it's a very um, interesting question for the purposes of today and tomorrow. We're understanding Abraham, for example, in the Genesis Apocryphon, this wonderful text we're going to read together, very much in sync with the um, Second Temple um, formation of Judaism as, as, a, as a lived religion and as one that is then inherited by the rabbis. Um, but the more historical question I'm happy to discuss with you at a, at a different time. Okay, thank you. And we'll see you all or some of you tomorrow. I hope you had a meaningful morning and I hope you have a meaningful um, uh, time, time off. Okay, enjoy learning. Okay, thank you. Okay.